This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, Peter Steinfels talks about his cover story on the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report on clergy sex abuse, a document he contends is inaccurate, unfair, and fundamentally misleading in its characterization of how church officials handled allegations of abuse in that state. Alan Lichtman, author of the book The Embattled Vote in America, discusses the complicated history of voting rights in the United States and how the Constitution is actually responsible for many of the problems. And Commonweal literary columnist Anthony Domestico interviews Danielle Chapman, whose work has appeared in our pages a number of times in the past year. This is the Commonweal Podcast. In August 2018, the Pennsylvania Attorney General released a grand jury report detailing decades of sexual abuse by priests in six Pennsylvania dioceses and contending that throughout this time, the men of God who were responsible for these victims not only did nothing but hid it all. Peter Steinfels, longtime religion reporter for the New York Times and a former editor of Commonweal, poured over the many pages of that document to see what else it said and what it didn't. He wrote up his findings in our January 25th cover story, which is also now on our website. The Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, not what it seems. Peter, thanks for being here. You're welcome. You open your piece by bringing the reader back to last August 2018 when Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro released a pretty startling grand jury report declaring hundreds of Catholic priests in six Pennsylvania dioceses had been abusing children for decades while bishops, quote, not only did nothing but hit it all. What was your reaction at the time to the findings of this report and to the media's coverage of it? Well, first of all, I was shocked by a lot of the contents in the report, as I think any sensitive person, especially a Catholic, would be. My second reaction was a little bit of shock and a little bit of surprise that so many people took this as utterly fresh news. If you had been reading and watching TV in 2002 when the Boston Globe presented its exposés of particularly what had gone on in the Boston Archdiocese, you would have seen these terrible stories about the pain and long-term devastating impact of sexual abuse on minors, especially when it was perpetrated by someone intimately responsible for the victim, like parents, Mm -hmm. or someone uh, with a special religious aura, like priests. Mm -hmm. Finally, I was a little disappointed by the media coverage. Uh, I've had to write uh, stories within hours of long and complicated encyclicals by Pope John Paul II. Mm -hmm. So I 
sympathized with reporters who were faced with an 884-page document, which not only they, but no one else had seen until they were at the press conference when it was released. However, I was disappointed when there was no real follow-up and uh, examination on when more time was available mm-hmm. of the contents of that report. Mm-hmm. So is it just then the, this elapse of time and, and this sort of gap of time following the report's release that you said, well, how come there's no follow-up here? Is this when you decided to take a closer look? I think I decided to take a closer look when I became familiar with the language and extent of the charges that were presented in the first 12-page introduction of the report, which I have to say seemed to have been the basis of a good 90 percent or more of all the media coverage, whether in print or on television. I'm not addressing the questions of the charges against predatory priests, but what leapt out at me was the charges against bishops and other church officials about how they handled allegations over this 70-year period, Mm -hmm. a long period, and the charges were extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were that all victims had been brushed aside by all officials everywhere and that the church officials had done nothing except to hide it all. That was extraordinary language Mm -hmm. that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court itself and on an opinion later called incendiary. Mm. So at that point, I said to myself, is this really substantiated or not? I wasn't imagining that, in fact, the absolute opposite was the truth, that no bishops Mm -hmm. had brushed aside victims, uh, no bishops had hid to protect the the abuser's reputation or the church institutions, uh, what had been uh, allegated. Mm -hmm. But I really was taken aback by the sweeping and indiscriminate nature of these charges. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, normally, this would deserve Mm fact-checking. So I set about that. Were your hunches sort of confirmed quickly or was it sort of through the slow accretion of detail as you're making your way through this that you began to think, wait a second, there is something different here that the 12-page introduction seems to obscure? Yes, I thought not only that the introduction uh, obscured it, but the reader, including myself, was kind of bludgeoned Mm. By agreement to the introduction by two factors. One was the sheer bulk of the report. Uh, The second was the sheer awfulness of the crimes and sins against uh, children and young people that were described. So my reaction was, I've got to start systematically checking dates, when abuse occurred, when allegations came in. And then actions, what did a given bishop or church official do about it? And faced with uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, profiling offenders, I decided to drill down on one diocese Mm -hmm. and then later check to see by sampling hundreds and hundreds of other pages whether that diocese was an outlier. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that I uh, reached the conclusion that the report, in fact, is grossly misleading, Mm. inaccurate, and really unjust. Mm -hmm. 
you, you take care to stress that what you're focusing on is not the documenting of the crimes and the acts committed by, the pre, by priests, but the characterization of the handling of these cases as a cover-up. And I think that's important for readers and listeners to hear that what it is you're actually tackling in this story. It's absolutely important. Uh, I have since uh, first having to examine this whole issue read scores and scores of victims' description of the impact that this kind of abuse made on their lives, which are terrible. I have spoken with individuals who have had this experience. I just am very concerned that these two things not be confused, the charges against the predatory priests on the one hand and the charges against the bishops and other church officials on the other hand. Mm. Uh, talk a little bit about how the organization of the report itself obscures some of its true content while also hindering or discouraging the kind of deeper analysis you attempted. Well, the report, uh, of course, features its introduction, and then it features an overview of the six dioceses that were investigated. And in the case of each diocese, there are three often very grotesque, even sacrilegious examples of abuse of minors uh, by priests. So all that is is highlighted. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, in fact, in the report, and, and, and I should back up and say that highlighting is what makes the report effective. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, however, the report is lopsided in the sense that it devotes 500, even far more than that, pages to describing abusing priests. It only devotes a few pages to analyzing in any systematic way the responses of church officials, nor does it even analyze greater patterns among the abusing priests, like, for example, how many priests were serving in those six dioceses over that very extended period of time, something we would like to know about. We would like to know what percentage mm -hmm. of priests were abusers of the total percentage that we're serving. So there's a lot of things that we're missing. And then when I said it, it was, my, my word, it was not lopsided. Unwieldy. Unwieldy. Yeah. Um, you had this 884 pages which were presented as the report from the grand jury. But that was followed by over 400 pages, adding up to 1,356 of responses that came in from the diocese and some of them from priests who were protesting their innocence. And basically, these were all photocopied and I think the fair word would be dumped at the end of the report. In fact, if you go to the website of the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office, you won't even find those essentially important responses from people who were named uh, on their website, PDF. I want to uh, get back, too, to something you alluded to a moment ago about the time span the report covers. And certainly, I think a number of us, when this news was breaking in the summer of 2018, thought, Wow, 70 to 80 years. Unbelievable. 70 to 80 years this report covers. Been treating these seven or so decades as a block, the report exhibits no sense of history or context. Can you talk about that a little? Oh, that was one of uh, the things that uh, came across in going through the whole report, which was not only what was there, mm -hmm. 
but what wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine a report on a subject like American family stability from 1945 to uh, 2018 or on race relations in America from World War II to the present or on environmental uh, pollution or conditions over 70 or 80 years. You would have to look at lots of developments in the whole culture, in our politics, in this case, our understanding of uh, sexual abuse of its extent, of its nature, of its impact, and how to handle it. Now, that has changed a lot over uh, this period of time. There's no sense of that at all in the report. And not only that, there are some important uh, and, in one case, landmark developments that are never really taken into account. The Catholic Church leadership began to wise up that sexual abuse of minors was not just a case of bad apples, but a systemic problem in the 1980s and through the 1990s. And they finally passed, promulgated the Dallas Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People following the Boston Globe's exposés uh, in, uh, I think, June of 2002. Mm -hmm. Now, that was really a change. I I do want to return to uh, the the years since the the promulgation of the Charter in in 2002. But before we do that, I think there's something very uh, interesting about your story. And this is uh, something you'd alluded to in prior conversations. Um, uh, But you raised concerns about the very nature of this kind of report, a grand jury investigative report. Why is it important for people to know just what this term means vis-a-vis the naming of names and concepts like due process and innocence until proof of guilt? The normal purpose of a grand jury report in history has always been to protect people from being subject to arrest and trial without sufficient cause. So grand juries usually investigate some incident to decide whether to indict a person. If a person is indicted, then that person has his or her day in court with cross-examination of witnesses and all the uh, things that are necessary to produce a regular trial. However, an investigative or investigating grand jury report takes on some issue with no real intention or ability to indict people. Therefore, in a sense, the report is in itself a conclusion rather just Mm -hmm. than a prelude to a testing of whether somebody is guilty or not guilty. And I think when a grand jury investigating report also names names, who people who will never have their day in court, in this case, not only the predatory priests about whom I have to confess I'm less concerned, but about bishops and church officials whose names were also presented, whose responses then were essentially ignored, mm-hmm. I think that's a serious problem, which people have to realize and which puts a burden on others to respond to the report once it's issued. Now, I point out something here. The bishops themselves, because some of them and many of their predecessors 
are in fact failed in their responses to uh, allegations of sexual abuse. The bishops really have a credibility problem on the one hand, and on the other hand, they have a pastoral responsibility not to do anything that would increase the pain of victims. And uh, therefore, they're not in a position to respond. That leaves it to the media, to civil libertarians, to scholars who would look at it. And I'm afraid that that uh, responsibility hasn't been taken up in this case. This was, I guess, sort of the initial types of these reports and investigative efforts uh, launched by a, a state attorney general. And there's indication now that more are to follow in other states. In fact, Illinois, I guess, is, has, uh, has undertaken one and, and uh, perhaps a dozen more states are thought to be doing so. And even the U.S. Department of Justice might be getting into the act, I think, as you put it in the story. What does this portend maybe for the next year or two or three in this regard on this topic? Uh, I think that's a very important point, and it's one of the reasons why I, you know, took, uh, in fact, months of work on this article, because I think unless people understand the dynamics of this kind of report, they will not necessarily be uh, receiving the truth. Mm -hmm. And um, these reports could be done well, but... My argument is only if they're done in a very different way than the Pennsylvania grand jury report was done, mm -hmm. that we will possibly get a very false image of the way that uh, church leaders, particularly in the last 30 years, but particularly since 2002, have carried out their responsibilities, we'll get a false p picture of whether our children or grandchildren are safe in mm -hmm. Catholic institutions and will also be probably uh, engaged in lots of further lawsuits. I don't take any position on uh, the question of civil lawsuits by victims from many years ago. Mm -hmm. You can argue that one way or another. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is a there is an argument about the responsibility of church institutions, of their charities, of their parish life and so on mm -hmm. to even be made bankrupt because of things done long ago. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then I guess we are talking about notions of statutes of limitations on charges from the past as well, yeah? Yes, I, I think that, uh, again, I'm not delving into that argument, uh, just like I'm not delving into lots of other things, the charges against Cardinal McCarrick or uh, Archbishop Viganò's charges about the Vatican. Um, I'm trying to stick to uh, this and uh, th this alone. So the, the, the grand jury report in the case of Pennsylvania makes four recommendations. One of them has to do with removing uh, statutes of limitations for criminal charges, and I don't see any problem with that. Maybe lawyers would. There's a two other ones, one that has to do with uh, sealing uh, documents uh, in uh, lawsuits. The other one has to do with reporting allegations to law enforcement officials. Mm -hmm. The one which I would call radioactive is the one about removing the, the statute of limitations for civil lawsuits by victims 
who are now 30 years old or more for things that happened in the past. Now, the actual proposal is to have a window under which such people Mm -hmm. for a period of, say, two years could begin lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, there's an arguable case for that. There's a case against it. There is a problem, however, that these old lawsuits, which are often against priests that are even deceased, Mm-hmm. Church officials who may be deceased or not active are very hard to deal with except in an arbitrary way. And the reality is they're often tried in the court of public opinion rather than in in the judicial process itself. Mm-hmm. So I have mixed feelings about that. I just think that in order to push the political process to open a window like that, the grand jury in Pennsylvania has simplified and distorted, in a sense, weaponized this grand jury investigation. And uh, that's what I'm concerned about because I think that the, uh, the impression for the general public and especially for Catholics, that results is inaccurate. Mm. You know, I think for some folks, that's going to be kind of difficult to hear. And, and you, you take care in your piece to anticipate and, uh, I guess, validate potential resistance to your analysis of, of this report. I think the word to use, you, you say that you're in It's an inquiry that you admit that for many angry and dismayed Catholics flies in the face of overpowering headwinds since questioning the report can be read as excusing the crimes that the church is accused of committing. And I'm wondering – and this is is probably a very difficult question. I'm not sure anybody will get to the answer soon. But why is there such anger still and why even when there is something like a reasoned analysis – of the construction and presentation of a report, resistance to accepting such an analysis or even entertaining such an analysis? That's a very important question. And I think the first answer is the uh, horror and proper horror we have at this kind of crime Mm -hmm. that uh, creates strong feelings Mm -hmm. that makes it very hard to entertain any distinctions about responsibility. Mm -hmm. Because of that, there's also become an established script Mm -hmm. in how clergy sex abuse, particularly Catholic clergy sex abuse, is viewed and understood. Uh, That script arises from the fact that there's a certain convergence between the desire of litigators to find some recompense for victims from the past and recompense which will only be found in the one source uh, available, which are the supposedly deep pockets of dioceses and of insurance companies. And on the other hand, the storytelling needs of the media. So that has resulted in a single script that poses negligible and knowledgeable bishops who purposely shuffled priests 
who they knew were dangerous to children from parish to parish versus uh, the victims. That's part of the story, but it's only part. Mm -hmm. The history of this abuse crisis is much more complicated than that. The other thing that your question raises why the, there's such resistance to examining this in any degree of calm is that our church is also roiled by a lot of other questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from the clerical culture to celibacy to how women are treated mm-hmm. in the church, contraception, same-sex marriage, uh, you name it, there are divisions among Catholics. I am not addressing them. I have written about those elsewhere and not with a particular glow uh, regarding the leadership of the bishops. But th- those are separate questions. They do, however, play into the, the difficulty in uh, approaching this with any degree of calm and making any distinctions about responsibilities. Yeah, I think that might sort of factor into how you take up this next question because you, you, you end the piece by expressing your belief in the progress that, that the American church has made on this front uh, since the years that are detailed in the report. Why do you think the story of the progress made since the adoption of the charter just isn't getting through? Well, I think uh, because there are these uh, continuing instances of at least apparent, maybe very real failures mm-hmm. by church leaders, not only a handful here in the United States, but uh, more and more coming from over 3,000 dioceses around the world, mm-hmm. of failures to sufficiently protect children. Mm-hmm. Those failures now in the way they're conveyed to people often blur the line between things that are current and things that are from decades in the past. And as I said, they're now international. Right. So that keeps the story alive. Now, every year or two years, the Bishop's Conference gathers together an audit mm-hmm. of extensive examination of uh, preventive programs and of allegations and how they were handled from all the almost 200 dioceses and jurisdictions in the United States. That's not really a story. Mm -hmm. I think that if most people could see the graph of sexual abuse as the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and other studies have shown Mm -hmm. and how it began to go up in the 60s, spiked in the 70s, began to drop down in the 80s. If they could see that graph with the number of cases that Mm -hmm. really have come to light and been dealt with really quite decisively since 2002, they would be surprised at the dramatic change that has taken place. It's not necessarily that I want to put you into the position of prognosticating, but we're several weeks out now from the uh, uh, the Bishops' Summit at the Vatican uh, on sex abuse in, in February. Uh, do you have any thoughts about what, how they might take up the issue there and what might come from it? That's a very difficult question because over the many years that I have paid attention to this, and particularly since 2002, I've become very aware of the worldwide dimensions of this issue 
and how different cultures, different governments, different law enforcement agencies and traditions deal with it, and therefore how hard it will be for the church to develop some kind of universal, specific guidelines or ways of approaching this. And that makes me pained to say Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure how much can be done in a brief meeting in February other than to raise consciousness, whether consciousness can be raised to meet the high expectations for that media that meeting rather mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which are already out there mm-hmm. and against which its outcome will be measured mm-hmm. is um, something that I'm not terribly optimistic about Peter Steinfeld's analysis of the Pennsylvania grand jury report is now featured on our website under the headline the Pennsylvania grand jury report not what it seems and it's also the cover story of our January 25th issue thanks Peter for being here you're quite welcome Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs religion literature and the arts we offer a number of subscription options Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. The 2018 midterm elections brought a huge number of new members to the U.S. Congress, but also revealed how in many ways our country's electoral system remains fundamentally flawed, with voting rights in many places seriously constrained and anything but guaranteed. In his book, The Embattled Vote in America, Alan Lichtman, a distinguished professor of history at American University, explains how more than 200 years after America's founding, there is still a battle over voting rights in large part because of a consequential mistake made by the framers of the Constitution. More than 200 years after America's founding, there's still a battle over voting rights because, as you write, the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. What was that mistake? And generally speaking, how has it played out over the course of the country's history? It is indeed the consequential mistake of the framers. Understand the framers were all all men. They were mostly substantial men, uh, slaveholders, people with commercial interests, speculators, lawyers. And the big debate in the Constitutional Convention was not whether there should be a right to vote. The big debate was over whether or not they should include economic qualifications in the Constitution. And they decided not to, not out of principle, but out of practice. They did not want to override the rights of the states to set their own economic qualifications because they knew that for the new Constitution to go into effect, it had to be ratified by at least three quarters of the states, and they were hoping for all of the states. So they defaulted voting rights to the states. And that is true to this day. All subsequent amendments on voting to the Constitution have been framed negatively in terms of what the states can't do. You can't deny the right to vote based on race or sex 
or age of 18 years or over. But none of these amendments confer a positive right to vote. And that's why I say the vote has been embattled in America from the founding to the present. And the achievement of voting rights in America has not been a smooth and linear process. Voting rights have both been expanded and contracted, and they remain contested today. In fact, we are at a pivot point when it comes to voting rights in America. I understand what you're saying there, and I do want to return to where we are at the present time, especially here just a month or so after the midterms. But near the beginning of your book, you have a great quote, and I'll, I'll read it. The founders may have loved the common people, but not well enough to entrust them with control over government. I think that people a little familiar with American history may know this or suspect this or have a sense of this, but but talk a little bit about what informed the founders and what might have motivated them philosophically and pragmatically. Why did they not trust the common people enough? Well, America was, of course, founded on what was a very radical principle for the late 18th century, and that is the sovereignty of the people. Government would be based on the people, not on the divine right of kings or the right of conquest. And that was an extraordinary founding idea. However, the founders tempered that idea with their fear that the people would be swayed by unscrupulous demagogues, and those demagogues could get the people to act against their best interests and against the freedoms and liberties of the American people. That's why they believed in economic qualifications for voting. And that's why the only office in the original Constitution, national office, that was directly elected by the people was the House of Representatives. They called it the People's House. The Senate was elected by state legislatures, and that didn't change until the early 20th century. And of course, to this day, there is no popular vote for president, but rather presidents are elected by the College of Electors selected in each individual state. In your chapter, Constructing and deconstructing the vote, you look at the post-Civil War dynamic of extending the franchise to and, and withholding it from newly freed slaves. Now, I know this could be a pretty broad question, but I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the key moments in this period, also looking at how the issue played out, not just in former Confederate states, but also in the North. Yes, certainly a key moment was in the late 1860s, when the Congress of the United States was debating what became the 15th Amendment. As I mentioned, the 15th Amendment is phrased negatively, that the states cannot deny the right to vote based on race, color, or condition of previous servitude. But there was a major debate within the Congress over whether they should establish an affirmative right to vote. And that was resolutely rejected by the great majority of members of the Congress. And they were worried if you established a universal right to vote, my goodness, paupers could vote. Maybe even Native Americans could vote. And God forbid, even women could vote. Remember, no women were voting in America at this time. They also worried that uh, because the amendment only focused on race, color, and condition of previous servitude, that the states could get around this amendment by adopting 
measures that on their face were not racial, but had the effect of denying the right to vote to uh, African Americans and other minorities, such as mechanisms like uh, literacy tests and poll taxes. But again, restrictions on those measures were rejected by the Congress because they believed that that was again going too far and could not be ratified by the states. They felt the sacrifices of the Civil War, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of dead, the South devastated, justified voting rights for the newly freed slaves, but nothing more. And that, of course, led to the virtual extinguishment of African-American voting rights after the end of Reconstruction in the 1870s and 1880s and the so-called redemption of the South by white supremacists. By the late 19th and early 20th century, black voting had been almost entirely erased in the South through mechanisms like the literacy test, the poll tax, the grandfather clause. But limitations on minority voting and voting by the less affluent were not limited to the South. There were quite a number of states in the North as well that had literacy tests. And states North and South in the late 19th and early 20th century adopted personal registration requirements, which made it more difficult, particularly for people at the margins of society to vote. So you had the great irony, particularly when it came to black voting. At the very beginning of the Republic, most states did not prohibit African-Americans from voting. They didn't have white-only clauses in their constitution. That changed in the early pre-Civil War 19th century when America moved towards a white man's republic and virtually all states extinguished uh, African-American voting. The voting was supposedly restored with the 15th Amendment. Then it was snuffed out again with the redemption of the South. You briefly mentioned uh, women's suffrage in your comments there for a moment. And the story of women's suffrage is also a, a long and winding one, and, and race played in that time significant role there too. Can you talk about this aspect of voting history? And there was something interesting to me, at least in your book, about the state of New Jersey in particular and how over the decades it alternately extended and then withdrew the right of women to vote. That's right. As the nation moved to the ideology of the white man's republic, New Jersey extinguished women's voting rights around 1807. And this ideology of the white man's republic pretty much led to the elimination of economic qualifications, but the establishment and continuation of qualifications based on race and sex. In other words, what were believed to be the inherent aspects of people came to replace external possessions like property. And both African-Americans and women in the 19th century were kind of jumbled together in the same category of people who did not have the inherent qualifications and ability to vote. And ironically, and this is so important in linking the past to the present, the denial of the right to vote to both women and African-Americans was justified on the basis of voter fraud. African-American votes would be bought. Women 
their votes would be manipulated because they were weak and dependent. Of course, there was no evidence to this effect, just as there's no evidence today of any significant voter fraud. But those were justifications for denying the vote for African-Americans and women. And it took women a very long struggle. We didn't be... uh, 19th Amendment to the Constitution until 1920. And unfortunately, even within the movement for suffrage, the issue of race very much divided the women pushing for women's rights. And some of the predominantly white women in the suffrage movement used their own type of racist arguments to get women the right to vote, saying, look, You know, if these ignorant immigrants or black people can vote, surely you can't deny the vote to refined, educated white women. You know, you cannot separate, unfortunately, voting rights in America from race in America, of course, like so much else in our history. You know, I do want to come up to the present day. I want to talk about the effects of the 2013 Supreme Court decision, this Shelby decision that invalidated preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. How has this influenced efforts like gerrymandering and packing of minority districts and other other mechanisms that, you know, have the effect, of, I guess, of suppressing the vote? Yes, as I've argued, if you look at the broad sweep of American history, voting rights have both been expanded and contracted. And the Shelby decision certainly has contributed to the contraction of voting rights in our own time. This decision essentially wiped out Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which said that uh, states and localities with a history of voting discrimination had to pre-clear any changes in voting laws and regulations, or alternatively, go to the uh, D.C. federal courts and prove that these changes were not discriminatory. Over a thousand discriminatory changes were blocked as a result of Section 5. And most of the covered jurisdictions were in the South, places like uh, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas. With the striking down by the Supreme Court of Section 5, then jurisdictions could go ahead and make any changes they want in voting laws and regulation without preclearance. The only way to stop it was to launch a lawsuit. And as you know, voting rights lawsuits are expensive. They're hard to win. They take protracted amounts of time. And this decision kind of has given many states license to adopt restrictive voting measures like, as you point out, uh, racial gerrymandering, stringent photo voter identification requirements that limit the right to vote of people on the margins of societies, draconian purges of voter rolls as the kind we see in Georgia, or this exact match law that they have in Georgia, which says You know, if your name is misspelled by one letter or you put in your middle initial rather than your middle name or you leave out a hyphen, your voting registration records don't count. Or what we saw in North Dakota, a a new law which says your ID had to have an exact address on it targeted against Native Americans who live on reservations where they don't have those kinds of addresses. So and poll closings. Closing 
Many polls will make it more difficult for marginal people to get access to the polls. All of these changes likely would have been blocked under Section 5, but it no longer exists. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the uh, excuse of uh, voter fraud to make it more difficult to vote and to suppress turnout. We, we see continued attempts to do that right up through the most recent midterm elections and with typically Republican officials citing voter fraud as justification. Now, I think most people, I could be wrong, but it seems like most people understand that statistics don't bear out the notion of widespread fraud. But isn't there a danger in simply repeating this charge over and over? There is great danger. You know, people come to believe things that they hear over and over. It's, you know, the classic technique of dictators. It's called the big lie. And the big lie works, particularly when it's perpetrated by the president of the United States, who's issued the biggest lie yet on voter fraud, claiming that somehow three to five million illegal voters mysteriously appeared on Election Day, all voted for Hillary Clinton and mysteriously disappeared. This would be the greatest conspiracy in the history of the country. Not only did the president present this without evidence, but all of the evidence completely contradicts it. Their voter fraud was vanishingly small in the presidential election of 2016, just as it has been in virtually all modern elections. Study after study after study has documented that you're about as likely to be hit by lightning as someone is to commit voter fraud. Indeed, as a famous book by Professor Manette is entitled, The Myth of Voter Fraud. It's a myth, but it's perpetrated and people come to believe it. Now, why are Republicans doing this? For the simple reason that their base is the most shrinking part of the electorate, older white voters. And the Democratic base is minority voters to a great extent. So the Republicans can't manufacture more elderly white men, but they can attempt to restrict the rising base of the Democratic Party. Hard politics, as always, throughout our history, underlies this. So your, your book appeared before the 2018 midterms. You raise a number of concerns that I think the 2018 midterms helped answer in some ways. What, if anything, did you see in this most recent cycle that both gives you cause for hope and cause for concern? I, you know, for instance, uh, Florida voters approved a measure to restore the franchise to felons who have served their sentences. Uh, but in places, say, like Georgia, there were what seemed like, you know, legitimate possibilities in charges of voter suppression. Yes. Uh, yeah, there, there was both hope and despair in this most recent election. You know, ironically, Florida has pioneered two very important things that I really want to stress because they could change the whole landscape of, of voter participation in America. You mentioned, of course, the referendum re-enfranchising form of felons, those who have paid their debt to society. And by the way, the disenfranchisement of felons is, of course, very much tied to race. It was one of the techniques that was used in the Jim Crow South to limit the voting of African Americans who are often targeted, of course, by law enforcement. The other thing that Florida did, though, that's even more important because it's more general. Earlier on, they had passed a re an anti-gerrymandering referendum. And before that, the Florida congressional seats had been badly gerrymandered, even though it's a swing state. 
most congressional seats had gone to Republicans. After this election and the anti-gerrymandering amendment, it was virtually tied. I think it was 14 Republicans, 13 Democrats about where it should be. And the lesson is they bypassed the legislature, which would never have contemplated, obviously, an anti-gerrymandering amendment. So the model for the states is if you want to establish laws that open up voting and stop voter suppression, go around the state legislatures and do it by referendum, get grassroots movements going to stop things like some of the despairing things we saw in the 2018 election. So there were some pretty troubling and poll closings. So there was pretty troubling signs in this election. Another positive sign just before this election was that the Supreme Court of the state of Pennsylvania struck down its gerrymandering of congressional districts. That gerrymandering had given Republicans more than 70% control of seats after the 2010 census, even though they won only 49% of the congressional vote. This was struck down, not by the federal courts, but by the state Supreme Court. And now there's a fair plan in Pennsylvania. So another model is maybe you shouldn't be going to the federal courts where there isn't a constitutional guarantee of the vote, but a more promising path for voting rights might well be the state courts. Alan Lichtman's book, The Embattled Vote in America, From the Founding to the Present, is available from Harvard University Press. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Danielle Chapman's poetry has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, and The Harvard Review, and a number of times in Commonweal over the past year. Our literary columnist, Anthony Domestico, got to speak with her recently. Take a listen as she and Tony take up everything from metaphysics and John Ashbery to Tennessee and Chicago and also hear Danielle read some of her work. Thanks so much for joining us today, Danielle. I thought we might begin by talking about something that we've actually spoken about in a previous uh, unrecorded conversation, which is how in your own reading, you told me that you really want writers to engage with the metaphysical, with the soul, with the real, and how if a poet or a novelist doesn't engage with these questions of ultimate concern, they might still be great poets, but they don't quite do it for you. First of all, I guess, is that a fair summary of of your own reading practice? And if it is, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about why this is so, why you seek out imaginative writers who wrestle with the metaphysical and what you think is distinctive about how imaginative writers wrestle with the metaphysical. Yeah, well, I think there are maybe two types of reading that I do. And so I say that that is probably true for those books that end up feeling like my books or the books that kind of propel me in my own life. So that's because I think it's so true for me as a poet that the call to be a poet and 
the call to believe in God are incredibly tied up for me. I don't Mm. experience those to really be in conflict, except in as much as both of them are incredibly difficult, (laughs) but but I don't find them to be in conflict with each other. So when I'm reading in the way that feels most personal and propulsive, I think that those are the books that stick to me most and, you know, push me further in in my own writing. I do, though, however, uh, you know, love all sorts of stuff. And at the moment, I'm, I'm preparing for this course on Shakespeare that I'm teaching next semester. And I am very interested in whether or not the metaphysical exists in terms of any real religious feeling in Shakespeare. Although the truth of it is that it's the sort of supernatural quality of its language that rivets me. So I think I kind of do two kinds of reading. um, And the latter, you know, being something like Shakespeare is maybe a little bit more exploratory and less intense. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So I wondered if we could kind of see how these ideas play out in some of your own poetry, in particular, in two of the poems that you've published in, in Commonweal. I was hoping you could read the first poem you published with us, uh, which is called After Ashbury. And it was published in the February 23rd, 2018 issue of the magazine. And before you read it, I wonder if you could just for our listeners, give some background to the poem. Yeah, well, it's, even though it's a somewhat compressed and meandering poem, it came out of a very literal experience, which was walking Mm -hmm. out of a John Ashbery poetry reading. And I think it was actually probably the last reading he gave or one of them, which was at Yale shortly before he passed away. And I've always had a sort of conflicted relationship with reading Ashbery. I, it was his book, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, was one of the first books I ever had. And I was, I maybe 14 years old and I picked up the book who knows where and it made absolutely no sense to me I was just infatuated with it (laughs) something in it you know I couldn't put a finger on it and yeah of course he's such a looming figure and you know thought of as the greatest poet of our time but something in me probably that more intense desire to kind of wrestle experience into form has always resisted him. I've always resisted reading him, maybe because of how elliptically he addresses the metaphysical or because he doesn't seem to believe that you truly can contain experience. But I came out of this reading and it was really kind of uncanny. All of these impressions started to kind of wash over me along with memory and just other bits of information in my life in a way that seemed to me kind of Ashbery-esque. Okay. After Ashbery for Olivia. Sky blushes upward like whiffin poofs or shirred eggs weeping the gold-leafed hair of Venetian friars as I accumulate Italy through texts, 
you craning to sip espresso on the Ponte Vecchio in last season's city pedal pushers, your necks meanwhile eliding eight years sorrow as this sky sieves cream off plums like some master rouging bottoms in a hammam or girls troubling over which clouds to call horsetails. Rome, Amsterdam, and God filtering through a pastor's meme. Shia LaBeouf roaring, just do it, illuminating his most holy name upon the pearl ceiling of all we're capable of feeling here in the latest millennium of cirrus wiggling rum warm orange foiled bellies across gaps in the brutalist car park as I round and break round and break down seven levels into New Haven. That's lovely. Thank you for reading that. So our listeners can't necessarily hear this, but if they look up the the poem, as I hope they do, they'll see that it's one long sentence. Uh, It's all enjammed until the eighth line um, with kind of images and clauses piling up. And there's an incredible preponderance of, of verbals here as well. So ing verbs. Uh, that indicate continuing ongoing action. So weeping, craning, alighting, rouging, troubling, and the list goes on. And so I'm interested in, in how you were thinking about pacing here. Did the rhythm, that kind of onrush rhythm, come to you immediately? Was it that you had this experience of, this, of a cascading of images and then you had to find the kind of proper uh, rhythm for it? And so I, I guess just another way of, of asking this w- would be what's what was primary for you in this poem and maybe in your poetry more generally, kind of writing to the image or writing to the rhythm, or is it is it both? Yeah, I'd say it's in this case, it's both. Sometimes it's the sound that comes first, but in this case, it was very much a sound image, I guess you would say, in which the visuals that I was seeing in that moment seem to harness or attempt to funnel all of these experiences or impressions that were occurring in a spot of time, which in that moment was sort of had a double meaning because I was standing right on the corner of Chapel Street and High Street, which is where the English department is, and also the Yale Art Gallery is there. And I've attended church services near a church there, and I received this text. So, you know, Wordsworth has this idea of a spot in time being, you know, a moment where things sort of melt away. But there, it was even more literal or geographical even than that, because I think of how contemporary experience is, you can sometimes, and usually it's just irritating, you know, <laughs> you taking in this incredible amount of information at any one time. And I guess in that moment, maybe under the influence of Ashbery, rather than being irritated and resisting it all, I just kind of let it. In. Yeah, I, I love that idea that there's a kind of plenitude to the moment, right? That one of my favorite 
lines in the poem is you write your next meanwhile alighting eight years sorrow is this sky sieves cream off plums and that idea of the meanwhile you know the simultaneous uh seems so crucial to the poem that the sky blushes as you receive texts as the sky sieves cream as you drive down the floors of the parking garage so yeah there's an interesting way in which the spot of time is a kind of plenteous moment for you in which different places, different memories, different images all somehow cohere for that one spot. So I'm, I'm a New Haven resident, uh, as are you. And the poem both begins and ends with New Haven details. So it begins with the Whiffenpoofs, who are an acapella group at Yale. And it ends with this brutalist car park that you're rounding and breaking, rounding and breaking down seven levels into the streets of New Haven. And I'm interested in what New Haven means to you kind of personally, poetically, imaginatively at this point in time. Yeah, New Haven is such a fascinating place to me. I don't think I ever imagined being here. I had never visited until we moved here. And I did have an impression of it because outside of New Haven, if you don't live here, it's presented as this city where Yale is, but it's like Yale is in this really scary city. You know, that's how, that's how people talk about it. It's this kind of awful place that has this incredible gem in it. That has not been my experience. Yeah, mine, mine neither. I truly feel like this is where I'm meant to be right now, where my family is meant to be. It's I've just experienced it as a, a true blessing to be here. The communities are so rich and so diverse. Uh, you know, it is, it's not just Yale, although obviously Yale offers so much, but you know, it's a real city uh, with, with real people and real difficulties. And all of the, I think all of the layers of the city really interact in this sort of vibrant, although that's really not the exact word, um, maybe I'd say fertile way. But, you know, there's also a lot of tension as well. So it's interesting for that reason. But I guess as a poet who works part-time at Yale, I feel called to see the city you know, through to the people who live there and not just as the place where Yale is. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think that, you know, After Ashbury is a great New Haven poem in part because precisely that interesting tension between the high and the low and the various elements that make up the poem and that make up our culture also make up the city of, of New Haven itself. And I, I wondered um, if we could move on to the, the second poem, a very different kind of poem, and this is uh, Good Friday Migraine, which uh, we published in the Eastern issue, uh, Easter issue from 2018. Uh, so would you mind reading that as well for our listeners? Good Friday Migraine. A bird, undeterred, tries to squeak juice from April ice as crocuses wince behind black snow. Though through the window, 
I wade into yellow warmth as if into the aural form vision has been tunneling toward. Tigered lemon flutes, trembling acetylene, and past the nauseated pain, Easter, blistering. Great. So interestingly, just like after Ashbury, this is a one-sentence poem, although it's a much shorter poem. It's spread out over three stanzas of four lines each. And I was wondering if you could give the listeners some some context again for this poem. So what kind of experience or or wrestling gave rise to it? What were some of the concerns, whether they're spiritual, imaginative, or perceptual that you're working through here? Yeah, well, again, even as in the other poem, though the language gets kind of torqued and is water falling together in some ways, it actually is literal. You know, it's about a migraine. Do you suffer from them regularly? I, I don't as much anymore, but I, yes, I do. Um, I, I get migraines. And there's a weird thing about a migraine, which is there often feels one has the intuition that there's some kind of meaning in the pain of it. Mm. Um, so you, whether it's true or not, yeah, you know, because there's also this kind of physical sensation of, you know, it's very hard to look at light, light, it's, it's painful to look at light. Yet you kind of, I don't get those auras that some people get, but I do sort of things look brighter Mm -hmm. than they normally would. And so obviously that has sort of spiritual overtones if you seek those, um, you know, but also just the physical sensation of trying to look into objects for meaning, but also at the same time, it's painful to do so. Yeah. And at the very center of the poem, you have this lovely phrase, I wade into yellow warmth as if into the oral form vision has been tunneling toward and so vi- that word vision is, and it's almost at the very center of the poem, and it, and it seems the hinge of the poem, right, where you move from this, the first stanza seems to be a kind of objective exterior vision, right, looking out and seeing a bird trying to squeak juice from April ice. And then the third stanza seems to be a very different kind of vision, an internal vision. Is that a, a phrase, vision? that you oftentimes think about when you're thinking about the poet's task, because you were, you were saying at the, at our, the very beginning that you almost can't see the distinction in your own work between the call to be a poet and the call to be a believer. So yes, that's very central for me. I find it difficult to put a fine point on it um, just because I feel it's sort of everything for me. (laughs) Uh, But, but my, the truth of it is that my first experiences of poetry were tied up with experiences that I would call religious imaginings or or a vision. I'm hesitant to say that because I think it's a little out there, but it's true. It, you know that that that's just true. The poetry, my first lines of poetry came to me at the same moment that I had a, a religious vision and that were, it was a conversion experience really. And so that is for me, the primary ground of where poems come from for me. 
Wonderful. I thought that maybe to conclude, we could move away from the really fantastic poetry you've been writing and talk instead about the equally lovely, strong prose that you've been writing. And so over the last year or so, you've been writing, you've written a couple of essays for Oxford American, a series of prose pieces about your family's history in Fairfield, Tennessee. And would you mind just briefly telling us about that history and what some of the issues are that you're exploring in these prose pieces? Sure. Well, I'm working on a book and the book as a whole centers around this 18th century farmhouse in Tennessee that was originally a tavern at the edge of the of the western frontier and sort of looking at the myths of America and the stories that came out of that house and trying to reckon with them. So that's the basis of the book. And the first piece that I published in the Oxford American was mostly reminiscences of characters from that house, um, people who lived either right there on the property or nearby. There's some pretty salty Southern characters down there. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Irma, who was, I think, one of the saltiest and most interesting of the characters in that first piece. Yeah. Well, technically she was the caretaker of the house, although I never heard her referred that to that way my entire upbringing. You know, that was, that would have been an extremely offensive label in her mind and Truly, we never, you know, she was just Irma. And although I have a hard time saying that because we changed her name. That's not really her name. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know. For the person of the piece, she's just Irma, yeah. Right. So she was just a fixture of my childhood. And, you know, she was a woman who lived there her whole life. The way my grandfather referred to her was, you know, she was the salt of the earth. I, I don't think she'd ever traveled outside of that county. Uh, she had only gone up through sixth grade and then had to work. She worked as a cafeteria cook, uh, you know, any, every kind of profession you could, you could imagine. She had no teeth, but she could, you know, she was proud that she could kind of crack a walnut with her gums. You know, she was just, you know, really, really distinctive in every way. And, she was, uh, you know, I, I loved her. And then as, you know, as time went on, I, and I was old enough to talk to her more, her attitudes began to uh, shock me, you know, her <laughs> attitudes about everything, but particularly race, you know, she was incredibly virulently racist. And so as I moved into adolescence, that presented a real conflict for me. Yeah. And the, the two pieces as a whole are, are really sustained and, and fascinating grappling with your family's changing relationship to race and history, your own changing relationship to race and history. I wondered from that piece, if you would mind telling the listeners again, just a little bit about George Singleton, who besides your own kind of personal rumination and wrestling with uh, history and race in this essay is in many ways the, the subject of this piece. Right. Well, George Singleton's story is just this incredible story that I heard growing up, although not that often, as I as I 
say in the essay, I remember very clearly my grandfather telling it to me when I was a very small child. And the story is that George and my great-great-grandfather were quote unquote, best friends, the the white man and the black man before the Civil War. And then George went with my great, great grandfather to fight at the Battle of Murfreesboro. And when my ancestor got his leg shot off at the Battle of Murfreesboro, the story is that George dragged him off the battlefield and saved his life got him back to Fairfield where he could recover. And then George went and fought for the Union Army. So he was free to go because the North had won the battle. Maybe also, we, we don't know, you know, what the interactions there were. But George went and fought for the Union Army. And then he returned to Fairfield and essentially saved the white family's life a second time because they were completely destitute and um, had no money. And George had a union pension. So he got the farm back up and running again. And then the white family gave him, well, sorry, didn't give him, helped him buy a piece of land that's like a one road over. So that's the story that I inherited. Yeah. And you inherited that story and the, but it's still a live story. You still have, your family still has a relationship with the Singleton family, which kind of ends the piece in a really powerful and again, complicated and I think honest way. So it's an incredibly powerful story. It's an incredibly powerful piece. Um, I look forward to, to seeing the book once it's complete. And I look forward to hopefully seeing more poetry from you in the magazine. Thanks so much, Danielle, for chatting with us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. And, you know, I just love talking to you, whether it's on this podcast or in a coffee shop in New Haven. Danielle's poems, Ashbury, Advent, and Good Friday Migraine can all be found on the Commonweal website. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.